Welcome, welcome, welcome everyone to 90 Day with Mary Jane Kay. Today, I'll be breaking down Season 9, Episode 9 of 90 Day Fiancé, Poison in the Honey. The episode starts with Shida and Bilal. They have 68 days to wed, and this weekend, Bilal has the kids. Shida is excited to hang out with Bilal's daughter because it's important for her to show Bilal that she can have a good relationship with his kids. Shida wants to show Bilal she is ready for motherhood. Shida and Bilal's daughter are cooking lunch together. Shida is washing chicken in the sink very aggressively. And she tells Bilal's daughter she has to wash the chicken like she's washing her lady parts. Bilal's daughter says some of the things Shida says definitely are awkward for her because she just doesn't know what to say. Shida mentions to her that her dad is a bit OCD, and he warns Shida about dropping water all over the place. So she asks Bilal's daughter how she survived to 16 years. Bilal's daughter says she's a messy person, so Bilal always tells her to clean this up now when he walks in her room. Shida is glad she has company since Bilal also perceives her as messy. Shida is happy that she and Zayna are getting along and they have things in common when it comes to living with Bilal. But something has been bothering Shida since Bilal's kids first met her, and that is that Zayna and Yusuf, Bilal's kids, call Shida by her first name. Shida tells Zayna as they are cooking that she loves how they are bonding in the kitchen. Awkwardly cooking one meal isn't bonding yet. It's maybe a small baby step towards that in my opinion. Shida says one of the important things for her is to build a nice relationship with she and Yusuf. Shida tells Zayna she first met her and her brother. She was a little taken aback by how they referred to Shida by her first name. Wow, if Shida pushed the kids to call her Umi when they don't want to from themselves and they don't feel it in their hearts and she keeps pushing them and pushing them, and she wants to now push it again as a sign of respect after she pushed it the first time and they weren't that down, and now she seems to be demanding it more strongly when the kids aren't comfortable, and that's a huge mistake in my opinion. If a child takes to you naturally over time and want to refer to you with a word meaning mom, that's their choice when and if they choose. If they are comfortable calling Shida by her first name, she should be more than happy with that. If these kids don't like her, they could be calling her much worse. Shida tells Zayna that she understands in her U.S. culture, it's not disrespectful for the kids to use her first name. But Shida was hoping the kids could come up with some other name for her. Shida tells Bilal's daughter when she suggested that his kids call her Umi, he told her that Umi means mom and maybe that's too much for his kids. Shida explains in her culture, Whether or not the kids feel a connection to an adult or not, out of respect, they always refer to them as Umi. Shida explains, of course, she isn't their mom, but in her culture, it's a word to refer respectfully to older adults. Bilal's daughter explains that she and her brother refer to Shida and their mom's new husband by their first names because that's their norm and she doesn't want to move too fast with the names. She is still getting used to Shida and getting to know her. She knows Shida is her stepmom technically, but she isn't ready to call Shida that just yet. Shida tells her she isn't going to pressure them to call her Umi. She tells Zayna to take her time. Just mentioning it a second time after mentioning it initially is already pressuring them in my opinion, and I don't think it's fair. Shida says it's all about cultural differences. She says it bothers her that Zayna doesn't want to call her Umi, but she has to take baby steps when it comes to trust, and it won't happen overnight. But she hopes it does happen because she needs Bilal to see that she is trying to build a relationship with the kids. She hopes she didn't put too much pressure on to make this relationship work with Zayna. Next up are Jibri and Miona. Last week, we saw Jibri and David get in a fight at the recording studio in front of the big producer, too. Jibri shoved David, who was criticizing him for sending one last text to Miona before putting his phone on Do Not Disturb, and David pushed back. 
And last episode ended with them both on the ground in the recording studio. The creepy alien dude who could barely move in his stupid costume made a futile effort to try and separate them. David's bandmates ask David what is up as Jibri isolates in the bathroom. David says he feels like Miona is just trying to have Jibri all for herself and she isn't letting Jibri be Jibri. She is slowing him down so much because he can't record or do anything. Jibri says David needs to shut the hell up. When they are at the studio, they have to work, so it's frustrating. David is telling his bandmates Jibri is always worried about what Miona is doing and how she is going to be. And Jibri walks into this conversation. Jibri tells David to stop talking shit or he is leaving. And David says he's trying to resolve it. Jibri tells David to go or he will smack the shit out of him and the creepy alien grabs Jibri by the shoulders to calm him. The other bandmate says they can't do it without David. Jibri says enough about Miona, that's it. David tells Jibri he better chill. David tells Jibri he is causing a scene in front of a producer. Jibri tells David to put it on the mic and stop. And David says he's trying to, but he wants to make sure Jibri's mind is here. David says he knows he was blaming Miona, but she is the source of this conflict and she is the source of Jibri's erratic behavior. He doesn't know if she is doing that to him or if he is doing it to himself, but Miona is a factor in that, according to David. He says it's very concerning. David tells Jibri to get his mind right. Jibri asks him to tell him what the real issue is. David says Miona is distracting him from the main goal. And Jibri responds that David is distracting him by talking about it, so they should get on the mic. Jibri tells his bandmates, Alex and Brandy, to go off. Please. Brandy says since they all got back together again, she does not appreciate this energy that they are cultivating right now, and this is not what it's all about. Jibri says right now they have a prominent sound engineer wanting to work with them and they're fighting amongst each other and they look like amateurs. Jibri says even though there is conflict with his band in the studio, it feels really good to be back at it and hearing their new music and they remember why they are doing this in the first place. Jibri says his band is like a family, a dysfunctional family, but music is when time stands still for him. Jibri apologizes for losing his cool. He tells the band he has a lot going on with Miona and he doesn't know how to deal with everything. David says he can see that and that's why he's worried about everything because he can see Jibri going all over the place. Usually his energy is steady and now every minute it's at a different level up and down. So he is just trying to figure out what is going on. Jibri says it's a lot of pressure. He just doesn't know how he will be able to give a full effort. He misses his bandmates and he really wants to make a real apology because he put a lot of effort into his relationship with Miona and he feels like he did give up the band for her and he doesn't know how he can do both Miona and the band. Jibri feels like being invested in the relationship with Miona and taking this next step is scary for him as somebody who is a creative nomad. He's scared of the things that he won't do. He doesn't want to be distracted and get lost in his relationship and forget about his dreams. Jibri says he got a little in over his head. He tells his band now he is under this pressure to get married and he doesn't know how many days left he has and it's a lot. Next up are Kobe and Emily in Salina, Kansas. They have 59 days to wed. Kobe has been in the U.S. for about a month now, and there has been a lot more bickering than Emily hoped for. They still have issues to work through, and Kobe and Emily hardly get out of the house because they have a child they live with, Emily's parents, so there's a lot of pressure and stress, plus planning the wedding, Emily says. Kobe and Emily are going horseback riding at a neighbor's house, and she thought it would be a fun day date since Emily's mom is watching the baby. Kobe has never been on a horse before in his entire life, and he never even touched a horse in his life. But whenever they have an opportunity to do something together, he is just happy to do it. Kobe says he and Emily disagree, and they have little fights, and he doesn't like that. He doesn't want them to be fighting constantly. 
He says the good thing about he and Emily is that they don't let the fighting ruin their experiences together. Emily's excited about marrying Kobe despite all of their issues. It's crazy to think they only have two months left. Kobe and Emily have discussed the wedding planning and how they will handle it financially. Emily wants to ask her parents for money for the wedding, but she thinks it hurts Kobe's pride for her to do that. Emily tells her parents she is worried about money. Wow, I wouldn't ask my parents if I knew I was living with my baby and fiancé rent-free, eating their food, paying no bills, and they also helped me raise my kid for 17 months without my fiancé and they'd babysit often and help me. I'd be too ashamed if I had parents like that to ask them to pay for more for me or my husband. I would get a small wedding I could afford and do a big one later if I must. Emily is lucky she has parents who would help her this much already, so now to ask for unnecessary stuff to me seems spoiled and way beyond too much. When Emily asks if her parents will help for the wedding, her dad sighs and her mom stays silent. Emily's dad explains to cameras that he and Lisa, Emily's mother, are currently paying for everything for Emily. So it's not surprising that Emily would ask them to pay for the wedding. He says right now they don't know Kobe that well. So Kobe has to prove to him that he can provide for his family. Her dad tells her he doesn't think Emily should get married just for the sake of getting married. And she says she isn't doing that. And she tells her dad she doesn't know why that's in his head. Her dad says it's about the time frame, and Emily tells him she is on a time frame. 90 days is all they have. Lisa tells Emily she has a choice. She says they like Kobe, he's a nice guy, but she has only known him for 30 days. And she tells Emily her relationship is her business, but she heard a worrisome interchange between Emily and Kobe the other day. Emily's dad asks what her mom is talking about. Lisa explains they were in the barn and Kobe was cleaning out the stalls and Emily interjects that Kobe got mad because she was telling him what to do. So he told her to shut the F up. Her dad says it's inappropriate and it's totally disrespectful. Emily says people argue so she isn't worried about it. Her dad says Emily can't let him speak to her that way and Emily insists it was handled and it doesn't need to be brought up again. Both of Emily's parents look super concerned. I don't blame them. Kobe's blow-up was inappropriate and disrespectful. I wouldn't take it, but also when you micromanage a person to death, it can make the person on the receiving end of that micromanagement feel like they are completely incapable and that the other person feels superior to them or that they know better and that they feel they can lead a person. And that leads to building resentment where the person doesn't hold back. And it's not okay how what Kobe told Emily, how he reacted, but I understand how Kobe got there. Emily was super condescending in the way she spoke to him. Lisa says the beginning of a relationship should be like rainbows and unicorns. And so if it's not in the first few weeks, they need to realize they aren't going to get married and then have everything automatically just be fine. Lisa thinks that's the attitude Emily has. Emily's mom tells her they will support her no matter what she decides. They are here for her. And her dad says they have legitimate concerns. Emily's mom tells her they are trying to help her. Emily says she knows they're trying to help, but that is why she is coming to them for help with money. But she has everything else handled. Emily says the hardest part of living at her parents' house is that sometimes they will get over-involved in her relationship. She knows she and Kobe have lots of problems to work at and it's hard enough on their own. So they don't need a third party in their relationship trying to help them figure it out. Emily's dad tells her if she is dead set on the wedding, they will help with it. But he asks Emily if she will keep coming back every few months to ask for other things. He tells her sooner or later she has to say, we are on our own. Emily says hopefully when Kobe gets his green card, he can work. Lisa, her mom, asks what kind of work Kobe will do, and Emily doesn't know. Emily's dad tells her he thinks Emily should focus on things like that. He thinks it's crazy that they haven't. 
Emily's dad says he worries whether Emily is making the right choice marrying Kobe, but his biggest concern right now is for Emily and for his grandson, Coben, that Emily talks the talk and she wants to move out and do this and do that. And she doesn't have a clue how to get from point A to point B. She doesn't have a clue. Lisa, Emily's mom, tells her she doesn't have a clue about what it's like to live in the real world. She knows Emily thinks she does, but she doesn't know what it is like to have a house payment and to pay utilities and to pay for kids and to buy food and budget money monthly because Emily has never done that. WTF, isn't she like 29? She should know how to do these things by then. Emily says she is sure she can figure it out. If she can figure it out, why hasn't she done it? Why is she living at her parents' house? I think if she could do it, she would be doing it. What 29-year-old wants to live with their mom and dad? When Emily says she is sure she can figure it out, Emily's dad says he doesn't see any evidence of that. Next up are Patrick and Thais and John, of course. Patrick and Thais have 71 days to wed. John called the plumber because there's no hot water and Patrick had to take a cold shower. John says with last night, he didn't know what Thais was saying exactly, but he could read Patrick's face and body language. Patrick says Thais's reaction to the house didn't make sense. There is nothing to complain about. And John agrees. Patrick explains that yesterday, he, Thais, and John moved to Dallas and it didn't go the way he hoped. Thais was upset about the house and complaining about it, being very underappreciative and ungrateful. And that's not how Patrick wanted to start their new life together. John tells Patrick he could tell Thais was annoying Patrick and getting under his skin. And Patrick says, yeah, he doesn't want to have all these issues and it's a lot. John asks if Thais is still tracking his phone. Patrick says, yes, he still hasn't taken it off yet. John asks Patrick if he intends to take it off. Patrick says yes, and he told Thais that that was the plan. John says it's a security blanket, and now that Thais is in the U.S., it's not necessary. And Patrick doesn't think it's going to be an issue. Of course it will be, in my opinion. I think she will accuse him of wanting to remove the tracking app so he can do nefarious things or cheat and make a drama so he keeps it so she can control him. John tells his brother he needs to man up. Patrick says in his relationship with Thais, he is usually just go with the flow. He holds things back and he hasn't expressed how angry something might make him or how Thais makes him feel with certain things because he doesn't want to have a fight. Patrick says Thais has been in the U.S. for a few weeks now and it's important that he starts dealing with the issues. He plans on marrying Thais in a couple months and he feels it's important she knows how he feels and he doesn't put these things off because he doesn't want to enter into a marriage with someone that doesn't trust him. Patrick and Thais go to dinner. He gives Thais a gift, a welcome to America present. It's lingerie and underneath the lingerie there's a cell phone and she is so happy with the phone. He tells her with a new phone he will stop her from having his location. He tells Thais now that she's in the U.S. with him, she doesn't need his location anymore. Thais tells Patrick he is clever. He got her a new phone just so he could turn off the other phone's location. He says he wanted to give her a present and he also didn't want her to have his location anymore. He says he can have two motives to give her the gifts. Thais says she doesn't like that and he tells her, then don't take the phone. Thais tells Patrick she wants to check all the time where he is and Patrick knows, but he explains it gives him tons of anxiety. He tells her it feels bad when he is with the love of his life and the love of his life doesn't trust him. It doesn't feel good. Thais tells Patrick he gave her reasons not to trust him. I bet he's cheated before. What other reason could there be? If he's cheated in the past and her way of dealing with it is knowing his location 24-7 and she can't trust him again, their whole relationship will never work, but we'll see. Patrick confirms that in the past there was an incident, so I guess he did cheat. Thais tells Patrick to tell her why she doesn't trust him. And Patrick says because he spoke to a girl after they were together in the very beginning of their relationship. And Thais tells Patrick 
He told her they hooked up too. Patrick says they just kissed. Hayes says just kissing is hooking up. Patrick thinks kissing a girl versus having sex is different. Patrick explains what happened. He says he went to Brazil and met Thais, and after the first time he visited, he and John had a house party, and there was a girl, and they made out, and he could have had sex with her, but he was drinking a lot, and he was kind of floppy, so nothing happened. So basically what he's saying is he had whiskey dick and couldn't get it up, or something would have happened, basically. Patrick felt bad because he was in Brazil with Thais and he told her he loved her. And this girl happened and it was a confusing time because he and Thais were in a relationship at that point, but he hasn't made anything close to that mistake since then. Has Patrick made other mistakes though, I wonder? He doesn't say he hasn't made any other mistakes. He just says that he hadn't made any mistakes close to that one. Thais says it wasn't just kissing. She and Patrick had been dating for six months. She looked at his phone and she asks whom he was talking to. And it was with the same girl he kissed. He was looking at her Instagram and she was ugly as fuck, according to Thais. Patrick says he already apologized for that. Thais says she is embarrassed for him. She says she was outraged because she saw all the messages. He told her he missed her and he was waiting to have dinner with her. Thais knows it happened a long time ago, but you don't forget these things quickly. Patrick asks if he has done anything like it since, and Thais says no, because she broke up with him, and then he got scared. Patrick says no, it's not because he's scared, it's because he believes in his relationship with Thais. He says it's impossible that he'd prefer to be with another woman. He tells Thais she is perfect for him. Thais says she is a little jealous in her relationships. It's hard for her to trust men. She grew up with that insecurity because her dad cheated on her mom. Despite her dad being an incredible person, she always thinks men could do that to her, even Patrick. She tells Patrick she wants to trust him, but that kind of thing can't ever happen again. In my opinion, if it happened once, it will happen again. Patrick agrees. He says if he does anything wrong, she can have his location again. Thais warns Patrick if he deceives her, she will go back to Brazil. Thais says if Patrick cheats, she will never give him another chance. Next up are Kara and Guillermo. They have 60 days to wed. Guillermo has been in Charlottesville, Virginia for three weeks. And Kara, Cheeky, their dog, and Guillermo feel like a family. Guillermo feels the pressure and he's stressed because there are only 60 days to finalize the paperwork. He tells Kara he has been trying to adjust to the new city, his house. He's been trying to adjust with Kara and they've been busy and they have the wedding stuff to do and they've got to look at venues. Guillermo wants to do something good and fun for their wedding. Kara says for her, because of the situation with the 90 days and the fact that the wedding has to happen so quickly and on a budget, that it makes sense for them to have a courthouse ceremony and wait until next year to have a big wedding. And at the courthouse, it will only cost them 50 bucks and they don't have money right now. Kara explains to Guillermo they are doing the first wedding very fast because they have to and in a year, they can always take their time and celebrate how they want to and they can then invite everyone and they will have more time to save money and more time to get Guillermo's family over to the U.S. She tells Guillermo she knows he wants a big wedding and they can have a big wedding eventually, but she doesn't want to squeeze her dream wedding into 90 days. Guillermo says in one year, they will be saving money for a baby or for a new house and he doesn't want to be thinking about a wedding in one or two years. He wants a wedding. Guillermo thinks they can spend right now and try their best. Kara asks what Guillermo would feel comfortable spending on a wedding. And Guillermo says $2,000. And that's not going to get them a venue in America. Guillermo asks if Kara has looked at pricing and she says she has friends who are married and they did big weddings and it's at least $10K just for a venue alone. Guillermo asks if she has went to venues and asked, and it would make him feel better to go check things out. Kara asks if Guillermo wants to fall in love with something he can't have. Guillermo says when they lived in the Dominican Republic, Kara was telling him yes about everything. But now that he is in the U.S., she tells him no to what he wants to do. And he just wants to be with the same person he fell in love with. Kara says she thinks that by coming to the U.S., their roles have reversed. In the Dominican Republic, Guillermo led Kara and he took charge of the decisions. And Kara says, 
maybe she has changed in the U.S. Then she says no, but it's just that more of the decision making in the U.S. is on her. Guillermo tells Kara she isn't his mom to tell him yes or not. Guillermo tells Kara they are going together to see a place and together they will make a choice. Kara says she can guarantee him it will cost more than $2,000 and she's right, obviously. Guillermo asks Kara if she is going to keep going on saying she guarantees him when she doesn't know shit. If the resentment keeps building, this will end up a train wreck. Kara can be rude and bossy and insensitive to Guillermo, over-functioning for him, making him feel incapable. But as far as the wedding stuff, she's right. Kara says she isn't telling Guillermo no just for shits and giggles. She's telling him no because there's logic behind it. And she knows these wedding venues are about to be astronomically priced. But she says, dear God, you can't say the truth around Guillermo because then she is a dream squasher. Kara tells Guillermo she is happy to show him a wedding venue, but she warns him not to get super attached. Next up, it's Miona and Jibri. They have 53 days to wed, and Miona is checking a wedding dress shop in Chicago because there isn't much of a choice in wedding dress shops in Rapid City. Miona always imagined what kind of dress she wants, so she is excited. Brandy, Jibri's bandmate, joins Miona at the bridal shop. Miona wishes her mom and sister were with her to experience this, but she is happy Brandy joined her. Brandy became a good friend to Miona when Jibri's band was on tour. They spent a lot of time together. Jibri and Miona didn't discuss the budget for the dress, but she knows Jibri is worried about money. Miona says she won't overspend or buy something ridiculous, but she wants to feel good in her dress. She says it will cost as much as it costs. She doesn't care. Miona mentions she doesn't see she and Jibri living in Rapid City. Brandy asks how it's been in Rapid City living in the house. Miona responds that they are too old to live with Jibri's parents. She is trying to do everything Jibri's parents ask her and to be her best, but it can be difficult at times. But Jibri is trying to meditate between them. She says meditate, but she means mediate, of course. She says he tries to be on both sides and make peace, but when it comes to Jibri's mom and in front of other people, she wants Jibri to be on her side. Miona says she never saw Jibri as that kind of person playing in the middle. Miona asks Brandy how Jibri was with David. She asks if Jibri was trying to stand up for her. Brandy tells Miona Jibri didn't want to talk about their relationship. And that Jibri is trying to keep the peace and juggle Miona and his family and merge things together. So Jibri isn't trying to ruffle feathers. Miona tells Brandy... She needs Jibri to learn that he always has to stick up for her. Brandy says she feels for Miona as any woman would, trying to make a relationship work, being new to this country, and trying to start a new life with a person you could potentially be with the rest of your life. Brandy says because she has been doing music with Jibri in the band, she has seen Jibri under pressure, so they'll see how it goes. Brandy asks Miona, so you want Jibri to fight for you a little bit more? And Miona says yes. And he will because she is teaching him. Next up are Eve and Muhammad in New Mexico. They have 75 days to wed. It's the next morning after Eve went out with her friends. And it appears like Eve just woke up. And she sits outside with Muhammad who was relaxing having a coffee. He announces he hasn't made Eve a cup because he didn't know when she would be awake. Muhammad tells Eve she told him she would be home in one or two hours and she got back way later than that at 10 or 10.30 when he was already asleep. So effing what? She was with her girlfriend. She wasn't out getting it from some other guy. This guy isn't her daddy. He needs to chill. I can't stand guys like this. She's 48. She doesn't need to answer to him because she went out with her friend and she got back slightly later than she said. Who cares? This guy needs to find a life because micromanaging Eve isn't it. And he's obviously bored. Eve says since Muhammad's arrival, she has been super stressed because she feels like all of a sudden there are all of these rules. And she isn't used to that. She says she's a very independent woman and she has taken care of herself most of her life. So she's sorry, but things are different in the U.S. And she isn't a Muslim and Muhammad doesn't live in a Muslim country anymore. Good for Eve. I hope she makes him pack his bags. Eve explains to Muhammad that she doesn't want to give up that time that she has 
she sometimes needs that time with her friends. She says her life is super busy and she has a lot of responsibilities. And last night she just had a little time with her friend and her friends are just worried about her. Muhammad says every time her friends are telling her they are worried about her and it makes no sense to him. He says he's trying to understand what they mean by it. Eve says her friends don't want her to lose who she is. He says in Egypt, there's a saying, don't spill the poison in the honey. In my opinion, Muhammad is the poison trying to control Eve, how she behaves, who she is, how she dresses, and he is going to try to control her further by trying to isolate her from her friends so she can just be his. I'm really not a fan of this guy at all. Muhammad says he feels that happening with Eve when she goes out with her friends, that they are the poison spilled in the honey. He thinks her friends have started to get in Eve's head and that's why she is acting like she doesn't know Muhammad. No, Eve is way smarter than Muhammad, first of all. She doesn't need her friends influencing her to make her own conclusions. She has a mind of her own and she's very smart and she can see all the red flags and the extent of control Muhammad tries to have and she doesn't want it and good for her. I don't like this guy and I don't like his attitude towards women at all. I don't like his attitude really towards American ways at all. Eve is very respectful of his culture and he doesn't seem to be that respectful of the American culture in my opinion. Eve says there are a lot of differences everyone isn't used to dealing with and she is trying to navigate learning about Muhammad's religion but she has no intentions of converting. Muhammad tells Eve not to connect his religion with who she is. He tells her she is scared and it doesn't make any sense. Muhammad tells Eve when her friends say that he feels defended. He means offended, of course. Eve says she also feels the same as her friends because she doesn't want to lose who she is. And Muhammad says he feels offended because her friends cannot judge him. And when they tell Eve these things, they are judging him. And now he wants to try and make Eve feel he is the victim of her biased American friends. No. He is no victim. He is not being judged for his religion or his culture. He isn't liked because he is a control freak and everyone can see it. Muhammad says her friends are just scared Eve will lose who she is, so they behave that way. And he asks Eve if she thinks she will lose who she is with him. And she says sometimes she does think that. Muhammad asks why. And Eve says she feels like his religion is too confining for her. She's a very free spirit and she doesn't want to abbreviate herself for anyone. You go, girl. Muhammad says in confessional, Eve doesn't have to convert to his religion, but he expected Eve to respect his culture because she decided to be with him. She does respect his culture and she has done more than most to accommodate his culture, having a prayer rug in her house, installing a bidet, getting rid of clothes Muhammad wouldn't approve of, even though she isn't a Muslim herself and she should dress any way she likes. She even stopped eating pork. She even went to a mosque. If I was her, I wouldn't mind having a bidet or a prayer rug, but I would continue living my life the way that I was. I would continue eating pepperoni pizza or drinking wine, and I would wear any clothes I want, and I wouldn't care if my partner wants to do his own religion, and I would support him in that, as long as I don't have to do anything or change anything about myself. Why should I? She has been backwards for this guy, and he is never satisfied. It's never enough, and it's never appreciated, and that bothers me. Muhammad says, How Eve feels makes no sense to him because she knew who he was two years before he ever came to the U.S. Muhammad says if he hid anything from her, she should let him know because he was very clear with her about everything. She says she is also clear and she wants him to accept who she is. She asks Muhammad, do you accept that I'm an American woman, that I'm not Islamic and I'm not Muslim? Muhammad says she wants to achieve that he is trying to control her. I think what he means is she wants to make it look like he is trying to control her, and he is trying to control her. His religion and culture are no excuse for his fuckery and his controlling ways, in my opinion. Eve says she wants to clarify, and Muhammad says Eve isn't trying. He says that happens to her when she hangs out with her friends. I hate that Muhammad thinks Eve doesn't have a mind of her own and that her evil American friends plant seeds in her head. He wants to look like the victim of some type of xenophobia or bias or something when he is legitimately controlling and that's the reason Eve has an issue with him. She doesn't need a daddy to micromanage her. 
Muhammad makes a signal for crazy with his hand and he tells Eve her friends are crazy. They get in her head. And Eve tells Muhammad it's disrespectful of him to say that and that it's untrue. In my opinion, Muhammad is trying to isolate Eve from her friends because to achieve the control he wants over Eve, he wants her to just be around him. And this guy is a walking red flag, the definition of red flags. I can't stand Muhammad at all. Eve says she and Muhammad over the last two years never talked about the specifics of what he expects of her based on his culture or religion. Muhammad says that's not right. He says Eve went to the society he was living in four times and that's who he is. And he says it was very clear. Eve says that's not the real reality. They were on vacation, so she didn't see the day in and day out of how a person would normally act in his culture. Muhammad says he thought he didn't need to explain anything because he felt she was ready to start a new life. She wasn't ready to live as they do in Egypt or in Islam in America, nor should she be whatsoever. Eve tells Muhammad she knows American life is different than his life, but she is sad and scared and nervous because she hopes they can figure out how to meld their different lives because they are very different. Muhammad says he isn't going to change who he is just because Eve's American friends think that she is going to be a different person by being with him. No, but Muhammad expects Eve to change though and to compromise. And she has. She has done more than most women would do to accommodate his bullshit. Is he going to compromise too? Muhammad says he doesn't know if Eve will listen to him or her friends. But he says if Eve doesn't accept him for who he is, he won't be here after the 90 days. I say good riddance. Adios. Sayonara. Muhammad tells Eve she went to Egypt and she knows his life and who he is. She knows everything. So he asks what Eve is talking about because she is wasting his time now. If Eve doesn't make this man pack his bags pronto, I am going to be so disappointed. She can have so much better than him and she deserves so much better than him. Back to Bilal and Shida. Bilal says today is a family day with Shida and the kids, so they're getting out of the house to have a little fun. Bilal mentions having to teach his daughter to drive and Shida as well. Shida knows how to drive just on the wrong side of the road and Bilal can't wait for her to drive. He is tired of driving Shida around when she needs stuff. Shida says today would have been a good day to shop for supplies and wedding decorations with his kids in the car on the way to family day. If I was Shida, I wouldn't mention all that or that I would prefer to do that over some type of family activity with Bilal's kids. It feels kind of selfish. Shida says Bilal is dragging his feet when it comes to wedding planning. And she says she loves Bilal, but this is her first wedding and she needs to look good. And she hasn't done anything yet. She tells Bilal they don't even have a venue. In my opinion, she doesn't need to discuss wedding planning with his kids in the car. This day is supposed to be about them, not her. Bilal acknowledges they have to get it done, but he looks annoyed. Bilal explains Shida has been here for a month now and she wants to talk about wedding planning. He says it's not that that's not important, but there are a lot more things to talk about before they start talking about wedding planning, according to Bilal, because he wants to get a prenup before he gets married. He should to protect his assets for his kids. That's smart. He says he mentioned the idea of a prenup, but they haven't discussed all of the details yet. The kids haven't had a lot of time with Shida yet, so Bilal doesn't want to stress about all the things he and Shida have to do. There are scooters, and Shida has seen scooters before, but she doesn't ride them. She thinks it's unsafe, but she is trying to downplay it to not kill the vibe with the kids. Shida has never ridden a scooter before, and Bilal tells her it's good to try new things. Shida says she doesn't want to be the party pooper of this wonderful family experience with everyone. Shida is terrified to get on the scooter. She asks Bilal if she will crash into the trash cans. Bilal says Shida's mind tends to go negative first a lot of times, and he was thinking that Shida should think on the bright side. She might not fall, and he says, let's just have fun, and, and Shida actually does fall, but... Bilal asks Shida how she is adapting because now she is in a new environment as far as home and living with another person, and she says she enjoys getting to know Bilal and seeing his habits. She tells Bilal he can be very fussy at times and very particular. 
Bilal questions what she means by fussy. And Shida explains Bilal is fussy, as in he likes to have everything spick and span, and she doesn't have a problem with that. But she gets nervous knowing that if Bilal comes home and sees his house a mess, he will fuss, and she doesn't want to hear him fuss. Bilal says it's not fussing because he doesn't fuss to her. Shida says Bilal complains about stuff like shining the spoons and all these things, shining everything. Bilal tells Shida she doesn't shine spoons. She says she can't please him. He says he's just telling her she even told him herself that her mom used to complain about her silverware. Shida says she hates when Bilal does this, that every time Bilal does this, any time she tells him anything, he throws it back and Bilal says he's not throwing it back. She says Bilal does that just to win the conversation and she hates that. He says he is just telling her because literally she will do it and then he will have to rewash it. Shida says every time they have a conversation, he must win. Every single time they talk, Bilal has to win. Bilal says he has never argued so much in his life, ever, with anyone, ever, to the point where he feels like there is no point of even arguing anymore. And when he tries to express himself, Shida says he is nagging or that he is giving her a lecture and he doesn't know what to do. He can't win for losing. Bilal tells Shida she always gets offended over something really small, and Shida says no, she doesn't. And Bilal has to understand that his way is not always right. Bilal says he never said that. Bilal says she is talking about something clean or being unclean, and that's not a right or a wrong. Shida says Bilal will fight down a conversation just to win. Bilal says there is no winning or losing. Shida says she is so uncomfortable speaking to him right now. Bilal tells her they don't have to talk then. Bilal asks if Shida is ready to leave, and he tells her she can nod her head if she doesn't want to speak to him. She says she is ready to have some me time, and she wants to sit on that bench by herself, so Bilal tells her to let him know when she is ready, and he leaves her to go meet his kids. Shida says every time she tries to bring up a problem when it comes to Bilal, He deflects and brings it back on her, and it is frustrating because they are butting heads in the relationship and they aren't coming to a solution on how to communicate more effectively. This is not how Shida sees herself dealing with a disagreement with her future spouse. Back to Kara and Guillermo, they look at wedding venues and they have 59 days to wed. Kara says this place would be nice if they had money in the bank, but they don't. Kara is showing Guillermo a vineyard. She wants to show him potential things they could do if they had time to plan and get an idea of what it actually costs to put a wedding together in America. Guillermo says Kara has told him no about so many things, like when to go out, what they can buy, or a place to have the wedding at. Guillermo feels that Kara doesn't want to respect his opinion. Guillermo says Kara doesn't want him to buy a computer even if he wants to buy it with his own money. And even at the high school reunion, it made him feel that she just wants to control every single thing. Guillermo says he almost wanted to cry because the vineyard wedding place was so beautiful. Guillermo loves the place, but he understands that it's very expensive and it's not what they can afford right now. Kara says now that Guillermo has seen how much it costs for the venue, he is thinking that she has a point. Kara knows Guillermo is dreaming and America is the land of dreams, but the money still has to be there. Kara asks Guillermo's thoughts about seeing the venue, and he says it's expensive, but it's a beautiful place. It's a dream. Kara says, but just for the wedding venue alone, it's $7,500. Guillermo says it's a lot of money. He appreciates that Kara listened to him and took him to the venue, but at the same time, she still wants to control everything. He says Kara makes plans all the time without asking him, and it's frustrating. Guillermo tells Kara sometimes when she tells him no so much on repeat, he doesn't feel free or at home like that. Kara says he feels like she has the final word, and Guillermo tells Kara she has to stop that shit, doing whatever she wants. Guillermo says the truth is that she doesn't have the final word. Guillermo says sometimes she does things even when he isn't there, like she makes plans when Guillermo isn't with her, and then he feels because she already made those plans, he has to go. Guillermo feels Kara pushes him into positions with her friends, making it seem like he doesn't want to be there. 
She will say he is feeling tired as an excuse when he doesn't go with her to her friends. Kara asks what he would like her to tell her friends. She says her friends know she will always show up. So they know if she doesn't attend, it's not because of her. So she asks Skirmo what she is supposed to say. She asks Skirmo if he wants her to lie to her friends. And she says it's just a question. Guillermo says if Kara still is doing those things in front of her friends, putting him in a bad position, he will tell her to go out and that's it. He says whenever he is really tired, he won't wait in the house. He will just move to another place because he isn't going to be waiting for someone who wants to do whatever they want. Guillermo tells Kara he made a deal with himself. If he doesn't want to do something she wants him to do and if he doesn't feel he wants to do it, he will just not do it. Kara says it doesn't bother her for Guillermo to voice his opinion. She is happy to hear his side and she may not agree with it, but this moment at the wedding venue is supposed to be romantic and beautiful and talking about the future and discussing happy things and not going out and plans and other shit. Kara says the day took a turn for the worse. She brought Guillermo to the vineyard to make him happy and now he's upset. Kara says it gives her pause when Guillermo is bringing up the same issues. She feels like she can't win. She thought Guillermo loved her for her and she feels Guillermo loves her for her when it's good for him. But when there is something about her personality that is not good, then all of a sudden everything is a big problem. Kara says it's raising some eyebrows for her. Next up are Jibri and Miona. Jibri says the studio session didn't go how he wanted it to go. So tonight, while Miona is hanging out with her cousin and her bandmate, Brandy, he and David are going to their favorite Serbian restaurant in Chicago because Jibri is still frustrated and angry about what went down. Jibri says in Serbian culture, when you get in a fight, you need to talk about it and drink some rakia. David wants to step back from everything that happened because there are lots of emotions going on and he says he and Jibri aren't on the same page and they have to do better. They can't be fighting. They aren't 19 anymore. They've already done that. Jibri says the thing that makes him mad is maybe David is right and maybe Miona isn't ready for this relationship and maybe he isn't ready for this relationship. David put a mirror in front of Jibri's face and Jibri asks, who wants to see that they failed or that they are not doing the right thing? He says no one likes to see that. David says they fought in that producer's studio. Jibri says... David was pissing him off. David says he understands, but Jibri can't act like that. David says he cares about Jibri. He isn't against Jibri and Miona. He is for them and he wants them to succeed. And Jibri says it doesn't feel like that. David says no, it doesn't because honesty is straight up and he's just being truthful. He says his mistrust was there and he is honest about it and Jibri should respect that. He is worried about Jibri. He asks what Miona is bringing to the relationship between herself and Jibri. He asks what Miona offers Jibri if she inspires him, if she supports Jibri's music, if she encourages him. Jibri says the music isn't Miona's world. Miona doesn't understand that Jibri gets creative at night. And when he has to be up at 4 a.m. and Miona wants him to come back to bed, she doesn't understand it and it's frustrating. David asks if Jibri thinks Miona will ever understand. He asks if Jibri thinks he will ever be able to explain it to her or have Miona be okay with it. Jibri says Miona is the first woman he has ever been with that's younger than him. Jibri usually has older women, women who are established, who take care of him. David points out that Jibri has to take care of Miona and it's a lot because Jibri still doesn't have his own stability himself. He likes to travel. Jibri says he has never been in a position like this. He has always had an older woman who has more degrees and money and real estate, and he doesn't have any of that. But he and Miona have something different, and right now his family and his best friend David doesn't see it. David says now Jibri is in love and he wants to build something with Miona. Jibri says Miona is the first person he sees himself having kids with. David says he gets a sense that Miona controls the relationship and that her needs take priority over everything else. He feels Jibri is willing to give himself up for her and he thinks Jibri will burn out and he's going to invest a lot of time and money and energy into something that might not work out. Jibri says Miona is young and impatient. 
David says Miona is putting pressure on Jibri about certain things. Jibri agrees. Says all the vacations they went on, Miona wanted them now and she expected it instantly. And Jibri didn't like that and it stresses him out. And he says every vacation after two or three days of going to the beach, he is bored and over it. Jibri says everything that gives him fulfillment in life, he doesn't thrive without creation. If he isn't creating something or being creative, doing music, there's only so much sex or adventure and excitement in terms of the vacation stuff. And it only gives him so much dopamine. He needs to create. And that's what David is worried about. He tells Jibri he sees two different worlds. Jibri asks David what he thinks he should do. He asks David if he would get married right now. David says no. He would need time to get to know his partner to make sure they are on the same page. And he says people change, so he would take his time. Jibri says David knows he is an impulsive person, so a lot of the time he doesn't think about the whole scenario. So he feels like he could potentially be making a mistake in putting Miona first ahead of his career. Jibri is feeling a lot of doubt about marrying Miona. Next up are Kobe and Emily. Emily's dad has a one-on-one conversation with Kobe. Emily and her mom took Coben to visit Emily's grandma, so it's just Kobe and Emily's dad at the house. Kobe says when Emily's dad said he wanted to talk about something, that Emily's dad is a big guy and he's very intimidating. Kobe feels they get along okay, but they haven't had a lot of time to spend together. So Kobe is nervous about why he wants to talk. Emily's dad tells Kobe he is just getting to know him and so far they have kept things pretty light, but he has some serious concerns. Emily's dad says ever since Kobe got here, there have been some confrontations with Emily and some of them got a little heated and that's a little disturbing. He will give Kobe the benefit of the doubt, but he wants to know what the future plan is because they have to know what the hell they are doing. Otherwise, they will float around in a fantasy world and Emily's dad says he isn't paying for it, period. He asks Kobe what his plan is as far as work and his financial goals. Kobe tells Emily's dad Emily suggested maybe he could go back to modeling, but Kobe doesn't know if that's possible in Salina. Emily told Kobe her dad is an architect, and Kobe thinks that's great because he has worked in the past in civil engineering. Since her dad has a company, Kobe was thinking her dad could train him to take over the company to keep the family name burning. Wow, the balls on this guy, the size of church bells. I would be furious at Kobe if I was the dad. How arrogant and presumptuous of him to assume he would deserve that honor. In my opinion, Kobe's lazy. He doesn't want to carve a path for himself. And so he wants Emily's dad, who he is mooching off of, to just hand him employment. And he assumes he is worthy to take over her dad's company when he just told his daughter to shut the fuck up. Emily's dad asks if Kobe had a license for civil engineering back in Cameroon or if he got a degree in it. And Kobe explains, no, he just had high school with no training whatsoever in civil engineering. Emily's dad says Kobe is crazy if he thinks he will take over his business, but that's not going to happen. He says Kobe is out of his mind and I have to agree. Emily's dad explains to Kobe if he wants to become an architect, that's a four or five year program. After that, it's two to four years of training before he can be licensed and Kobe would have to figure out a way to pay for all that. Kobe says he doesn't mind going back to school and he didn't tell Emily how much money he brought, but he proudly tells her dad he brought $4,000 as if that's a lot. That won't cover the books and classes for one semester or two months of rent if he's lucky. Kobe tells Emily's dad 4000 will last them a while. Is Kobe on drugs? How stupid is he? Wow. Emily's dad breaks the news that $4,000 in America to live is not a lot. He tells Kobe that might last them a couple months at most. Kobe says back home in Cameroon with $4,000, you can rent an apartment on your own for almost a year and feed your whole family. Um, not in America. That's two months rent maximum, if that. Kobe thought the $4,000 would fulfill the promises he made to Emily. Emily's dad tells Kobe to have a plan. 
I commend Emily's dad for being diplomatic here. If I was in this situation and it was my dad having this talk, he would have been really insulted when the guy assumed he would give him a job and then when he assumed he could work without doing the degree and licensing and also that he was so arrogant as to believe that he was worthy of taking over the family business to keep the family name going. Who the fuck is he? This is insane. He was an underwear model internationally. Didn't he have some concept of the cost of living in the U.S. and a general idea of what rent would cost? Did he not have access to Google to see and do research? Emily's dad is going to help Kobe have a plan, and he says maybe they will be out of his house before the 90 days is up, hopefully. Emily's dad suggests that Kobe sit down with Emily to discuss a budget, and he warns Kobe Emily doesn't know how all this works. And to me, it looks like Kobe has no clue either. He warns Kobe it's not party in the USA, it's work, work, work. And he hopes Kobe is ready for it. Emily's dad says Kobe has a lot of mouths to feed and he thinks Kobe has good intentions, but he is still waiting to feel that Kobe and Emily will realize love isn't enough and that they are willing to go the extra mile to make it work. Next up are Patrick and Thais. They have 70 days to wed. Patrick says Thais wasn't happy that he isn't going to be sharing his location with her any longer. He wants her to forgive him for his past mistakes. He thinks it's time to have trust in their relationship. John lets Thais and Patrick know he is throwing a housewarming party later today with a few co-workers, nothing crazy. John says every house needs a housewarming party to make it official. He says they are new to the city, so it was a nice gesture to get people involved who Thais can meet. Thais, of course, doesn't like the idea. She doesn't approve of having a party without asking the other people who live in the house, too. John says if he had asked for permission, they would have said no, so he didn't. John invited random girls, and Patrick says since he and Thais are working on trust, he doesn't like the idea of random girls in his house. Patrick is uncomfortable with the girls coming to the house. Patrick expects Thais to be uncomfortable as well. Thais doesn't like throwing parties. She says she is conservative. She likes having peace at home. She considered cussing everyone out and kicking them out. Patrick looks uncomfortable and his friend asks him what the deal is. And he explains he invited people for Thais to make friends. And Patrick explains he has anxiety because if Thais has a problem with this, it will create a huge problem for him. Patrick's co-worker, who moved to Dallas too and has known Patrick for years, says Thais has been jealous a bunch of times that they've been out watching sports and she thinks they're out doing a bunch of things with different women when they aren't. They're just watching football. Thais pulls Patrick aside at the party and she warns him to be careful. He tells her he wants her to know he isn't trying to talk to the girls. Thais says she wants to let him know she has his eye on everything he does. Patrick tells her the girls there are ugly and she is a beautiful Brazilian and Thais says she knows. Thais says it doesn't take away from the fact that she thought the party wasn't a good thing, especially with the girls she did not approve of. She feels insecure, but she knows they have to go back to the party. It's her only option to trust him. Next time on 90 Day Fiance, Benny says this fight is his American dream. He has to win. Ari asks, what if she tells him she has a bad feeling about this? And he tells her not to worry. She asks, what if I ask you not to fight? Shida and Bilal take the Ferris wheel, and Shida is terrified. Bilal tells her if she is scared of heights, don't look down. He tells Shida about the marriage contract, the prenup. Shida says she is in complete shock right now. Before she came to the U.S., Bilal had mentioned a prenup, and she was adamant that it was not for her. Why not? If she is in it for love and he wants all of his assets to be protected for his kids, she should gladly be willing to sign it, in my opinion. Kara is doing shots with a friend. They cheers to her and Guillermo, and her friend says he is still concerned that Kara thinks she will bounce back if this all goes awry. Kara says she has had people question every single decision she has made because it's against the norm. Her friend says there's a lot of risk here. Kara says she's a betting woman. Emily is trying on wedding dresses. She feels like if she is getting married, she would like a nice ring, and she shows her family that accompanies her to wedding dress shopping, a ring box that she pulls out of her purse, and she bought a ring for herself. 
Emily's mom asks, what if Kobe finds a ring and buys it and she doesn't like that ring as much as the one she bought herself? Patrick tells Thais they have money to trust him and Thais asks, show me. Patrick pulls out cash angrily and he says, here, take some cash. He asks, you want to have a fucking painting on the wall? Go get a fucking painting. Very angrily. Thais says, this isn't the man she fell for in Brazil. That's not how a man should treat a woman. Thais walks away saying she is done with this conversation after Patrick throws money at her. Miona tells Jibri she doesn't feel any support from his parents. And Jibri says right now they are saying they don't even want to come to their wedding. Miona says that's absolutely fine. And Jibri says that's not absolutely fine with him though. Miona says Jibri should grow up and stop thinking what his parents are thinking. She tells Jibri he should focus on them if he wants this to work. Miona asks, do you want this to work? And Jibri says, if it's going to be like this, no. By the way, Miona in the scene has so much makeup and bronzer on, she looks like Bozo the Clown. And to make her lips look bigger, the liner and lipstick is way over her natural lip and it's not even blended the right way and it's incredibly obvious. I don't think it looks good. I thought she wanted a makeup line. Anyways, that does it for this episode. To my YouTube viewers, please like and subscribe. Thanks so much for tuning in. See you next week. Bye.